tonight. Is this uh, is this on? Can you hear? Is this working? Anybody not here? Probably. Okay. Great. Thank you, Sam. Uh, this is man. This is a uh, first time I've ever worn this, and I literally cannot stop thinking about like '90s boy bands with this on. So I like legitimately in my mind, I'm just picturing myself like Justin Timberlake up here <laughs> giving this sermon. So I just want you to know that's what's going to be in my head this entire time is JT up here preaching. Um, so yeah, on that note, uh, let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this time. I pray that you would speak your word, uh, the word of your son Jesus into our hearts in this time. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and a mind to understand the word that you have for us this morning. In your name, amen. All right, so um, good morning. Uh, If you were here last week, that's when Chris kind of finished his series on Romans. Uh, Praise the Lord, am I right? Um, (laughs) Thanks. No, uh, it was was awesome. Good job, Chris. Um, But there's no more Romans. We're finished with that for today. So um, we're going to jump into something different. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead, open it up to Matthew 20. Uh, what Chris just read for us there. That's going to be our text uh, this morning. So we're going to dig into this, this passage that's fun and uh, maybe a little bit offensive, but at the same time, really beautiful uh, parable. Um, but we're going to set the stage while you're opening with a little bit of context. So uh, if you're not familiar with it, Matthew's gospel is super fun, right? It's, it's kind of well known that Matthew's gospel reflects a very Jewish worldview and message, and, and part of that is that Matthew kind of seemingly throughout his work presents Jesus as a new Moses, and one way in particular this shows up is in the structure of the book, the way Matthew organizes his account. His gospel was organized around five different blocks of teaching, different sermons really throughout the gospel of Matthew, um, and this seems to be intended to reflect the Pentateuch, right? The five books of Moses. Um, so Matthew, I think, in his structure even, is saying Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is, in fact, the prophet like Moses. That is the giver of a better law, the better Pentateuch. Um, in Matthew, particularly, Jesus is a teacher, and he's a teacher with better wisdom, with better instruction, a better story to give. Um, He's a better covenant mediator with a better new covenant um, than the old one with Moses. And indeed, more than any of the other three gospels we have, Matthew really tends to focus on Jesus as a teacher, as on someone who teaches, who preaches the word. Um, And because of this, there's a lot of accounts in Matthew like the one we're going to look at in just a second from Matthew 20, that are only in Matthew's gospel, right? So this is not in Luke. This is not in Mark. It's totally unique to Matthew, um, who presents Jesus as the better Moses, the better teacher. Um, And we're going to jump into this, but really briefly first, I think it's important to kind of situate our passage in Matthew's broader gospel. So Matthew starts off with the introduction. You've got the genealogy and the birth accounts of Jesus, And then there's four kind of blocks of story, and each one followed by one of those big sermons of teaching that Jesus Jesus gives. And that's the Sermon on the Mount, everybody knows, in chapters 5 through 7. 
Then there's the discourse that Jesus gives to his disciples um, that he's about to send out to announce the kingdom in chapter 10. There's a collection of kingdom parables in chapter 13. And then there's the um, teaching about the kingdom to his disciples, particularly in chapter 18. And then there's the fifth major section, and that's where our passage this morning is. Um, and in this fifth section, this kind of focuses on Jesus's rising conflict with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees and others. Um, and it's showing him entering the city of Jerusalem, kind of culminating in his final um, events. And this section ends in the Olivet Discourse, right, in chapters 24 and 25, this apocalyptic sermon Jesus gives. And then, as I'm sure we know, the book ends with the passion and the resurrection of Jesus. And I think, you know, maybe this is just a me thing, maybe I'm just a nerd, but I I think this is important to kind of situate this passage in Matthew's gospel. It's almost like a you are here sign, if you've ever seen those in like a a rest stop or something on the, on the, the interstate. Right, that, that little star of you are here only has meaning if we understand the whole map, right? Where we are only matters insofar as we know how it's connected to everywhere else, right? And so I think that same principle applies with the scripture. Um, what it says here in chapter 20 can only be fully known and appreciated by considering where it is in context, right? In relation to the rest of the book and then really to the rest of the entire canon. So I think all of this you know, structural stuff is important uh, for that reason. But so what we have is Jesus speaking this parable as he's nearing the end of his ministry, and he's trying to get the cruciform. If you remember, I think the last time I preached, I talked about the cruciform or the cross-shaped life, the cross-shaped idea of discipleship. Jesus is trying to get this cruciform nature of discipleship into the heads of his disciples And as he's doing it, he's upsetting Pharisees and the other religious leaders um, as he's going. And so if you look just before our account, uh, in chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus kind of famously said, let the little children come to me, right? And right after that account, he sent the rich young ruler away from him. And so Matthew, as we've already seen, structures his gospel really meticulously So this juxtaposition of little children come to me, rich young ruler walks away from Jesus, that's not an accident, right? That's not a coincidence. I think that Matthew wants us to think about those two events in chapter 19 as, uh, and then to, to think about those things together and then to understand this parable that we just read in chapter 20 as almost a commentary on what just happened. Right? And in fact, this is kind of explicit. If you look at the very end of chapter 19, it ends in verse 30 with, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then our passage that Chris just read this morning in verse 16 ends with, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. So whatever this statement means, we're going to get into that, but this kind of forms a bookend, or if I wanted to be really fancy and pretentious, I could call it an inclusio, Um, around our text. And what this literary device does is it highlights even more just what we've been saying, that whatever this last is first and first is last thing is, um, it's illustrated by the children juxtaposed with the rich young ruler, and it's elaborated on and explained by this weird parable we just read in chapter 20. 
And then if you want to go even further, this is all exemplified in what follows our text of uh, Jesus once again, I think for the third time, telling his disciples that the kingdom will come and Jesus will be raised, but only through his betrayal and death. So you got all that, right? Easy? Um, no, it, that's confusing, and that's a lot, I know. Um, and we haven't even started jumping into the actual text. But at, at one level, I just want to step back and say that even that is so amazing, is it not? The Holy Spirit, speaking through the evangelist Matthew, so inspired this account to reinforce in so many different and beautiful ways this same truth that in God's kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. So this stuff just fascinates me, and I think the Holy Spirit is a very good author. So well done, God. Um, so without further ado, I do want to jump into this passage of uh, chapter 20 in Matthew's gospel. So it starts off, as many of Jesus's parables do, as pretty normal, right? Jesus is likening the kingdom. He talks about this a lot, the kingdom of heaven, specifically in Matthew's gospel, He's likening this to a normal, kind of average situation that all of his listeners would immediately resonate with, understand, but then he adds this surprising twist to the end. So in verses 1 and 2, Jesus is talking, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them in to his vineyard. So the master of the house offers a denarius for a day's labor. And if you have the ESV, like I do, you might notice there's a little text note on the word denarius, and it literally says that a denarius is, in fact, defined as the common wage for a laborer for one day. So this thing seems eminently fair, totally normal. The unit of measurement is a day's labor, and they work a day's labor and get that unit of measurement. It is completely and utterly fair, normal, um, nothing out of the ordinary. But then it continues, and going out about the third hour, the master saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So there's a couple things here. One is that those he finds standing are idle. Um, and it seems like here, I'm not sure, but it seems like there's a little bit of an indictment on the master's part. Um, you know, but we're not exactly told why they're idle here, right? Why, why didn't they go in earlier at the first hour? Were they asleep? Were they just waiting for a better deal? Did no one offer them any jobs? We don't know at this stage, but we do know that the master nevertheless offers them to go out and to work the vineyard. And note especially what he says about the wage, whatever is right, I will give you. I don't, if somebody offered me that deal, I don't know if I would take it. But these people did. Um, it was good enough for them. And then it continues on. So they went out, and going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, the master did the exact same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So here we get a little bit more detail with these 11th hour workers. The master does the same thing. He does it three more times. And then at the 11th hour, which is about 5 p.m., right, almost functionally the end of the kind of first century agricultural workday, 
by this time, the master is clearly calling out the idleness of the workers, but we also get a clear reason for it. No one has called them in to work. So the master once again sends more people into the field, and then here is where the turn in this parable happens, and it gets really interesting. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. So the people hired last, the people hired in the 11th hour at the end of the day, they get paid first, which is already a little bit weird. But what's really strange and really shocking is that they get paid a full denarius. They get paid for about 12 hours of work when they really only worked about one. But this seems like an altogether good thing, right? But imagine, put yourself in the shoes of the workers who have been there since 6 a.m., right? You would be seeing this, seeing the 11th hour workers getting paid, and you'd be thinking probably the same thing they were, like, wow, these guys got paid a denarius? I wonder how much we're going to get then. And maybe if you're like me, you'd be sitting there doing the math, right? Like, well, so they got a denarius for one hour of work, and I worked 12 hours, so I'm going to get 12 denarii. Can you believe it? I'm so excited. Um, And then imagine thinking this, and then imagine thinking about your spouse and your kids at home. Imagine thinking of all the things you could do with 12 denarii, people to provide for, people to pay for their school, people to put food on the table for. Imagine your excitement anticipating what you're going to get. Only then, if we put ourselves in those shoes, can I think we really understand what happens. So it goes on. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. Gosh, that's difficult, isn't it? This, at least for me, whenever I hear this, it feels so wrong. It feels so unfair, so unjust. I really struggle with this. But I want to say this from the very beginning, maybe more to me than to anybody else, but no matter how strongly we feel about it, if we ever kind of find ourselves on the wrong side of Jesus's teaching, if we ever agree with those who he says are wrong, or if we ever disagree with the right, if we study and figure it out and make sure, you know, we're actually understanding the point, but if we get to that point and we actually just fundamentally in our hearts disagree, then we are wrong. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. Jesus is Lord, and we are not. So even if we don't like this teaching, even if we don't understand it, at the end of the day, at the very least, if we can't come to understand it, we at least have to bow the knee to the all-wise king. We have to repent 
and sackcloth and ashes and listen to him instead of our own hearts, right? So that's the posture I kind of implore all of us, especially me, to take as we approach understanding this text, right? It's, it's the, the posture of may we never, ever stand above the Lord and his word to criticize it, right? That's led to so much trouble in the past 300 years of church history, the last 100 in America. May we never seek to stand above the Lord's word and criticize it, but may we stand underneath it to humbly receive what it says. That's the posture I want us to take this morning. So with this in mind, what is the point of this parable? I'll tell you what it's not. This is not the story of a trite, of a greedy, or of an equivocating master, right? He didn't scam the workers, and he's not relying on a technicality to keep from them what's rightfully theirs. In fact, to the earliest workers, he did give them exactly, precisely what was rightfully theirs. No more, no less. And then in his own counsel, by his own unilateral gracious decision he decided to give above and beyond what was required to everybody else and so in a weird way it is in this way and exactly in this way that the first are last and the last are first right some receive exactly what they are owed perhaps we are to think like the rich young ruler of chapter 19 and others at the sole discretion of the giver through no deserving of their own, are gifted far more than they could ever ask or understand. Maybe like the little children who come to Jesus in chapter 19. And when we realize, as I'm sure Jesus intended us to, that the master isn't just the master of the field, but the master of the entire universe, higher than us, not just in degree, but in kind, we realize that we are owed nothing whatsoever from his almighty hand. We realize that all is gift, that all is grace. And because we aren't, by nature, we're not workers at all, but we are actively idle rebels sitting in the market, wasting our lives until the 11th hour, the lesson is all the more forceful, right? Nothing is earned, all is given. And more, when others are given, what we think they don't deserve, what do we do? Do we, do we grumble and do we complain like the earliest workers did? Shouldn't we rather rejoice in what one commentator, R.T. France, he's a biblical scholar, he called this the unreasonable generosity of God. What a phrase right there, the unreasonable generosity. But when others receive that unreasonable generosity, do we complain and grumble about it, that they're getting something better than us? Or should we rejoice on their behalf, right? This is the lesson that the elder brother of the prodigal son in Luke 15 needed to learn. And this is also the lesson that the prophet Jonah that we had read for us this morning needed to learn. When others receive unreasonable grace, unreasonable generosity, don't complain, don't be angry, don't be jealous, but rejoice in God's mercy. So that's them, but what about us? What specifically can we, today, glean from this parable for our lives? I have three suggestions um, for application as we kind of wind this down to a close this morning. The first is pretty simple. It's to trust the giver and his word absolutely. 
in all things, we have to realize that, recognize that God is true, that God is sovereign, that God is righteous and just, that God is good, and we, most of the time, most emphatically are not. If there is ever a discrepancy, like a real discrepancy, between what we think and what God says, like maybe with difficult or unintuitive passages like this one, may we never cast the blame on him. If, any, if this discrepancy is real and if it's not resolved with you know, further clarity, then the fault is squarely ours. It has to be. So never forget our total depravity and never forget God's total goodness at the same time. Even when it seems senseless, even when it seems unfair, or if it seems unreasonable, we have to trust in God's bedrock sovereignty and his bedrock love. We can question God, of course. That happens all throughout the scripture. We can question, we can doubt, we can struggle, we can wrestle with God, but we may never accuse him of being wrong. At the end of the day, right, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, our good king. The good king that has demonstrated his love for us, he proved it, and he's earned our trust. So we can submit to his gracious rule over us, even when it doesn't make sense. So trust the giver and trust his word completely. The second application is, I think, to rightly understand grace and justice. Okay, so... Besides, besides Tim Keller, probably the second most influential modern theologian person in my life has been R.C. Sproul. Um, I listened to, no joke, probably every single one of his podcasts, which were originally tapes or something. Um, he's super old. I don't know what it was. But I've listened to every single one of those uh, while I was driving back and forth between Morgantown and Blacksville, where I led Young Life in college. And one of those that's just burned in my memory is when he's up front with a whiteboard explaining justice versus grace. So when we hear this parable, the early workers, and and us if we're not careful, are tempted to accuse the master of injustice, right? But this is a complete misunderstanding. There is no injustice on his part. There's only non-justice, okay? So... Bear with me. Imagine justice is this enclosed circle, okay? Everything within the circle is perfectly just, perfectly fair, perfectly equitable. Everything is getting precisely what you deserve. But you can exit or go beyond this circle, and anything outside the circle is non-justice, not justice, not getting precisely what you deserve, but this can happen in one of two ways. You can go outside the circle on one of two sides. There are two types of non-justice. There is injustice, right, which is getting, you know, the bad or evil things that you don't deserve. That is not just. But there's another type of non-justice that's getting the good things that you don't deserve, and that is how R.C. Sproul defined grace. So hear this, there is no injustice in God. There is justice. God is a perfectly just God, and the early workers in this parable received justice. But there's also grace. 
that the later workers received. God never acts unjustly. He either acts justly or graciously. And for us, who constantly rebel and in reality deserve nothing but punishment, we should never ask God for his justice. And I'm not talking about like societal justice. I'm talking about cosmic justice. We should never ask God for his justice. Amen? In and through the person and work of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us, we should plead only God's grace. So God isn't fair, and praise the Lord that he's not. That is actually the only hope for you and for me is that God would not be fair, that he would be non-just and show us grace. Praise the Lord that our God is the one who invites the 11th hour worker in and gives him the full denarius. Because the 11th hour worker is all of us. So God is just, yes, but he's also a God of non-justice, a God of grace. So praise God for that. So trust the giver, trust his word, understand grace and justice. And then thirdly and finally this morning, because of God's grace and because of his generosity, the first are last and the last are first. The values of God's kingdom are upside down. The king is the very one who was crucified. The kingdom belongs to the little children and not the rich young ruler. Become as one of these little children. If you are in the kingdom, if you're one of the earlier workers, I'm going to talk to you for a second. This parable should challenge you, should challenge us, as it did these who heard it. Those who are last will be first. So are you envious or are you judgmental of the latecomers, the people who showed up in the field later than you? Are you reluctant to proclaim to whomever Nineveh might be for you? Think, who is the person or the group of people that you most dislike, you most struggle with? The people for whom you say, there's just no way God's kingdom can include those people, not them, the question is, are you willing to become last so that those people might be first? The upside-down nature of the kingdom is beautiful, yes, but it's not easy. And then, for those of you that may not yet be laboring in the field, I hope that this parable will challenge you, too. I hope that it will urge you not to tarry. Don't wait it very well may be the 11th hour. But even now, even yet, the invitation and the prize offered to you is the same that has been offered to all. It's the full denarius. Come and work in the field. Come and die with Jesus on the cross. Come and be raised with him and feast with us around his table. You, 11th hour worker, are invited it's not too late. Come to the gracious, the sovereign king. Come to his upside-down kingdom. I urge you to do this this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.